All right, Matthew 24. This will be hour 26 in our study of Matthew 24. And we still don't have any answers, but that's okay. All right, Matthew 24. couple of things uh, for those listening online who are participating in the Bible study exercise. If you look at the curriculum, let me see, let me go back here. If you look at the curriculum, we on, let's see, we have one more week in Matthew 24. Actually, no. Um, according to this, this is supposed to be the last week. And then next week, we will jump to John. Let me see. I've got to open it here. If it will open. It's going to be the Gospel of John, I believe, chapter 15, verses 26 through 27. And chapter 16, 7 through 15 is where we'll be possibly next week. We'll have to see because I don't think we're going to be able to finish everything in Matthew 24 this week. But we will do our best so this week's session is Unit 2, Session 6, uh, which is uh, Stay Prepared and Ready. Technically, we have not looked at that because what we are using for the curriculum actually for this week is Unit 2, Session 5, which is Keep Serving Faithfully. So that's where we are, but the curriculum is just there to supplement everything else we do. So we're going to set that aside, and we're going to focus on, well, Matthew 24. So everybody ready? Here we go. Matthew 24. We started off by pointing out the fact that Matthew 24 is one of those chapters that's quoted and quoted and quoted and quoted and quoted and quoted sermon after sermon after sermon. However, it's constantly verses are ripped out of context and everyone ignores what the chapter is about. So what's the immediate context for Matthew 24? It's Jesus walking out of the temple, right? He walks out of the temples. Disciples immediately walk up to him and say... Do you see all of these buildings? And Jesus immediately says, they're all going to be destroyed, right? They're all going to be destroyed. And they start asking what kind of questions? When? Where? How? They're, they are confused. This is pretty shocking news. Then Jesus, starting in verse 4, first thing he tells them is what? You can look at verse 4. It's open book. Don't be deceived. Let no one deceive you, which I find somewhat ironic because he starts his actual answer to their question with don't let anyone deceive you and for 2,000 years people have been using Matthew 24 to deceive people because they completely ignore the context but starting in and starting in verse 4 and following he begins to give signs right now throughout church history there have been basically two camps in how to handle Matthew 24 camp one basically looks at Matthew 24 and looks at all the signs and they say these signs point to what the second coming, all right? So anytime there's an earthquake, anytime there's a war, anytime there's a pestilence, they're like, oh, it's a sign that Jesus is going to return. First of all, there's major issues with that just from a logical standpoint because how many earthquakes, how many wars, how many famines, how many disease, I'll think of everything that's happened since Jesus spoke these words in around 33 AD. At some point, the signs would lose what? All meaning, Right? I mean, oh, another war. Oh, oh, it's, it's, it's signed. Well, there's been how many wars since 33 AD? How many earthquakes since 33 AD? They, they would lose all, all meaning. But a lot of people immediately wants to point to the future. What's the second camp? The second camp is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. When, we know when that temple was destroyed. That temple was destroyed when? 
70 AD, I believe it was August 70 AD, if I remember correctly. I don't remember the day, but it's August 70 AD when it was destroyed. So that means what's the best way to approach this? First and foremost is like all of these signs point to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And we have been able to work through identifying that a a large portion of these signs, we can historically indicate that they happened before 70 AD and pointed perfectly to 70 AD. The first major one that caused us any problems was in what verse? What was the first one that we were like, "Uh uh-oh, does this work? Verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. We thought, nope, no way that happened. And what did we discover in the writings of Paul? He said the gospel had gone into all the world. In fact, he he was so specific that it had gone to all creatures. So, Clearly, we we are able to prove that that happened before 70 A.D. because Paul said that prior to 70 A.D. All right. Then where was the next major problem? Verse 15, because everyone hears abomination of desolation. They're like, oh, that's a future temple. And how does how does the people who look at it from a future perspective, they believe a new temple is going to be rebuilt. And then the Antichrist will walk into the temple, declare himself to be God. And that'll be the abomination of desolation. That makes a good story. The problem is we believe the abomination of desolation occurred when? We believe it occurred in 70 AD, but if you're not happy with 70 AD, I gave you names of individuals in the writings of Josephus, which clearly indicate that there were at least two individuals who did what? They made their headquarters in the Holy of Holies, and that happened between 65 and 68 AD, right? We talked about that. So clearly the abomination of desolation occurred, we believe, I think 70 AD is still your best bet, because what happened? Well, the Romans come in and they do what? I mean, I think that's an, I think that's an a desolation, I think that's an abomination, when the Gentile armies are coming in and completely destroying and burning your temple, and carrying everything in it back to Rome, with their symbols of apostasy. So, I think 70, we, we, we can clearly prove that that happened in 70 AD, Right? Okay, then we started moving through verse 16 and following, right? None of those were problems because they're like, when you see the abomination of desolation, do what? Run, and what makes it significant is look at verse 20. Pray that your flight not be in winter, neither when. On the Sabbath day, that even makes more sense being 70 AD because that's still the Jewish era where the Sabbath laws would have still been in effect. That really has a hard time telling me that that has something to do with but something in the future, right? Where almost no countries have Sabbath laws, right? So, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, and the temple was... To, every, everything just makes sense for 70 AD. So, so far we were good, right? Everybody agree? Then where did we get that the next major problem occurred? 29 is where the next major problem occurs. All the other ones, there's a couple of issues here and there, but for the most part, the text still demands 70 AD, but 29 is where we're like, what in the world do we do with this, right? Let me read it. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. We can all agree that's somewhat problematic, but let me make sure we remind ourselves of something. Whether you go with the view that this is about 70 AD or whether you go with the view that this is something in the future, everyone has a problem. Some people don't want to admit it, 
But what are the two problems? What are the two problems? We talked about this on Sunday night. Yeah, the chronology and the event. The chrono- what's the chronological problem? Well, if you go with the future idea, what does everyone always say? Okay, the future idea is you have a seven-year tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, Christ comes back and sets up a millennial reign, right? Well, this says these things happen after the tribulation. When you go to Revelation and you have things happening to the sun, moon, and stars, when does it occur? Chapter 6 and chapter 8, before the end of the tribulation. So we have a chronological problem. There's problem number one. What's problem number two? Well, the event itself. Because the event itself can only happen how many times? You think it can only happen once. But there's a problem there. Because the same language is used multiple times in the Old Testament associated with the destruction of Babylon and Basra, right? And Egypt. Now, wait a minute. It didn't happen when Babylon was destroyed, when Egypt was destroyed, and Basra was destroyed. That would be it happening three times. That's a problem, agreed? So that's what we're looking at. So what our two options is to try to put it in the future, and we have a chronological problem, or we have to try to connect it to 70 AD, and we have an event problem. So we've been looking at this from what perspective? What's the perspective called? Preterism, or the preterist approach, where they try to explain how this can fit 70 AD, because the preterist approach is to take almost all of Bible prophecy and say it happened when? 70 AD, 70 AD, 70 AD. Because a lot of things fit perfectly with 70 AD if you know that history, especially if you read all of the writings of Josephus, who gave, who's basically an eyewitness to everything that occurred, It's a lot there. So we're going to go back and we're going to try. We're going to try to finish this. Now, before we do so, go back to Matthew 24. Just to remind you, what's the the biggest problem in all of this is verse 34. This is the verse that should cause you to have migraines, okay? Because verse 34 says what? This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now, if you hold to 70 AD, that works perfectly, right? Jesus gives the prophecy around 33 AD. Everything's over by 70 AD. That's a short period of time, yes? Well, if you don't go with 70 AD, then this generation did not mean that generation. It has to mean... Some generation that hasn't even, well, been possibly even been born yet. And we're in 2022. That's a long time. So that becomes a problem, yes? So no matter what we do, verse 34 is going to be a problem. But we're, we're going to work on verse 29, all right? So we're going to listen to some preterists and see how they handle this. Everybody ready? We've already read some of this, but just so that we get everyone on the same page. Everyone ready? All right. They read, they quote Matthew 24, 29 to 31. Everybody can see those, 24, 29 to 31. I know we've read it like a hundred times now by now. All right, here we go. This passage describes the parousia, that's another word for the second coming, right? In vivid and graphic images, dealing with clearly astronomical phenomenon. Everyone agree? 
It speaks of signs in the sky that will be visible and the sound of a trumpet that will be audible. Perhaps no portion of the Olivet Discourse provides more difficulties to the preterist view than this one. We can all say, Amen. It makes perfect sense that this would cause problems. This portion leads many interpreters to see a clear historical division between references to the destruction of the Jerusalem and references to the parousia of Christ. These interpreters grant that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem took place within the time frame of one generation, but insist that Christ is yet to appear in the clouds of glory. This is true of interpreters from both the liberal and conservative ends of theological spectrum. For the preterism, a member of, the, of Russell, remember we've talked about him, went through the whole history of him, right? So we've talked about him. He insists, uh, let me see, where did I find this? Uh, that they must give a credible explanation for how these verses fit into the time frame of the first century. And I agree. They, they, it's their responsibility to give us a credible interpretation. We'll see if they do so. We already know part of what they're going to go, but that's okay. Because Matthew 24, 29 through 31 begins with the adverb immediately, Russell insists that this links the tribulation in Matthew 24, 15 to 22 to a near-at-hand manifestation of Christ in glory. Russell sees no possibility of any great interval of time between these two events. That's a good argument, yes? It says immediately. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, you could argue that the tribulation of these days is the qualifier there, right? But it's still seeming to give a a very fast time frame. But that's okay. To argue that the second event occurred in the first century must be demonstrated that the tribulation refers to the calamity suffered by the Jews during, during the destruction of Jerusalem. All right? They have a major discussion about all of that. I'm not going to go through all of that again. All right? But the big issue is the language that is used about the moon, the stars, and all of that. So, the first thing they, appointed, they talked about, and we looked at it on Sunday night in great detail, was Isaiah 13, verse 9, verse 10, and verse 13. Isaiah 13, verse 9, verse 10, and verse 13. If you want to look it up, have it just as a reference. I know we covered this Sunday night, but just to get everyone on the same page. I'm going to quote in the book from the translation they use. All right? Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, And he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it, for the stars of heaven and the consolations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place. Now, the issue is here is what is he describing there? The destruction of Babylon. So what did we try to do? Well, book of Revelation talks about the destruction of a Babylon, but it doesn't associate these signs with the destruction of that Babylon. In fact, Revelation has these signs occurring before the destruction of that Babylon. So that creates a problem. So what's the argument that's typically used here? That what's being used in Isaiah is what kind of language? Figurative or symbolic language. And whenever a kingdom or a nation was destroyed... It was likened to the, basically, the heaven shaken, earth being moved out of its place, and the stars and the moon and the sun not giving their light or falling. 
because they like they they are drawing a correlation between an earthly power and the heavenly powers. And so when the earthly power goes, it's symbolic using that kind of language. That's the argument. Now, what's the problem with that? It creates a weird hermeneutic because now which parts do we take literal and which parts do we take allegorically? So everybody remember Isaiah 13? All right. Where uh, that we run into another problem in Isaiah where? Chapter 34. Right? Verses 3 through 5. The prophet Isaiah announces the desolation of Basra, the capital of Edom, and the following language. The mountain shall be melted with the blood of the slain. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. Using that same kind of language. Well, clearly it couldn't happen when Babylon was destroyed and when Basra was destroyed because they'd have to happen on the same day with the exact same things happening. And if you try to put these both to the future, it doesn't seem to work. All right? Do do you remember those two? We also talked about the same language used to describe what? The destruction of Egypt. Right? Does anybody have the scripture reference for that one? Yeah, Ezekiel 32, 7 through 8. So that's Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, and Ezekiel what? 32. All right. So all of that creates a problem. All right. So this is what they, uh, this is what they say here. Here again, we have the very imagery used by our Lord in his prophetic discourse. And if the fate of Basra might properly be described in language so lofty, why would it be thought extravagant to employ the same language describing the fate of Jerusalem? At this point, we cannot accuse Russell of deviating from the classical Reformed hermeneutic that requires us to interpret Scripture by Scripture. This is a clear application of, now y'all can write this phrase down. We're going to have to study it at some other time. I cannot go into it tonight. You can write this phrase down. Analogy of faith. All right. We've talked about it in the past. You probably don't remember. Just write that phrase down and you can just say that it's, just put analogy of faith, circle it, and we'll come back to it at a later time and talk about it but we won't do so now. All right? All right, they make an argument here that the, uh, that the language employed in biblical prophecy is not always cold and logical as common in the Western world, but it adopts a kind of fervor common to the East. Scripture commonly describes the visitation of God's judgment with images of convulsion and cataclysms. The conclusion then to which we are irresistibly led, Russell adds, is that the imagery employed by our Lord in the prophetic discourse is not inappropriate to the dissolution of the Jewish state, which took place at the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, the destruction of Jerusalem was more than the destruction of the city. It was destruction of the entire Jewish age and the destruction of Judaism as we would ever, as we, well, we still don't know Judaism as it was. So in other words, it was a pretty significant event. So if you could use this lofty language to describe the destruction of Babylon, Basra, and Egypt, why couldn't the same language be used to to describe here? It's at least a logical argument. I'm not saying it's perfect, but at least it's 
It works to some point. Uh, It is appropriate both as it is in keeping with the acknowledged style of the ancient prophets and also because the moral grandeur of the event is such as to justify the use of such language in this particular case. All right? Uh, Let's see here. There's a lot of things they talk about here, but I'm not going to go through all of them. All right, I'm just going to stop. I'm not going to read any more what they say because they go into all kinds of other issues that would uh, lead us to other problems. So let's stop right here. So what are our options? So let's think this through. Everybody ready? Okay. So the key verse is what in Matthew 24? Verse 29, that's our problem verse. Yes? Okay, so. On one hand, what is the strength? So you, if you want to draw a, a, a line down the middle of your page and put Math, and at the top, put Matthew 24, 29, and then put on the left hand, 70 AD. On the right hand, put future. That's fine. Then you can try to just, we can just try to list the pros and cons of this, okay? Because you know what I like to do? I like to get you to think. I don't like to just give you answers because that's boring, right? Okay, so here we go. Everybody ready? All right, Matthew 24, 29. What is the strength of the 70 A.D. approach? What's the strength of it? Come on. There's some strengths there. Okay, nobody wants to say anything. There's none! Okay, no, that that would be bad. The first strength is context, context, context. Jesus walked out of the temple. He says this temple's going to be destroyed. They say when. He starts giving them signs. The context clearly makes sense in 70 A.D., right? Can we all agree 70 A.D. makes the most sense from a contextual standpoint? Number two, another strength would be what verse? 34, okay? Verse 34 would definitely add to the argument that it's 70 A.D. because this generation is going to see it. If he makes the prophecy in 33 A.D. and the temple is burning in 70 A.D., that's a short period of time. Would everyone agree? Would that fit the one ge- a, a generation? I think that fits better than saying it's not happened yet. So those are two good arguments. What is the third good argument for 70 AD? Well, the sun, moon, and stars can only fall once. It couldn't have happened when Babylon was destroyed. And then it couldn't have happened again when Basra was destroyed. And it couldn't happen again when... When Egypt was destroyed, and then it can't happen again somewhere in the future, right? And then it happened also when Jerusalem was destroyed. It can only happen one time. So that would argue for the possibility that the only way to interpret this is in somewhat allegorical language, figurative language, to symbolize the destruction of a nation, which it did in all of those other Old Testament passages. The only, well, we'll just go with that, okay? All right? That's another strength. Any other strength? Any other positive? Okay, that makes sense for 70 AD. What are what the other strengths for it? Okay, let's go through the movement. What's the first strength? Context, number two. This generation, number three. It can only happen once, right? Sun, moon, and stars. They can't be destroyed 15 different times, right? Okay? Okay, good. Okay, another, another strength. This would be number four. It fits immediately after this tribulation. It fits perfectly, right? 
Because immediately after the, if, if it's symbolic, well, when the, when the temple falls, well, then the sun, moon, and stars figuratively fell. Right. That, that, that fits. I agree. It fits. Any other strength? All right. What are the weaknesses? Okay, well, there's the strengths of 70 AD. Now, what's the weaknesses of the 70 AD approach? Come on. There's one big weakness. Well, well that's the next verse. Okay. What's the first big weakness? Everybody should get this one right. Everybody ready for it? Hermeneutical consistency. Because, wait a minute. Okay, so this leads that problem. Like, wait a minute. So in Isaiah, which parts do we take literal? Which parts do we take figurative? Wait, so part of, the, part of things in Matthew 24, they're literal, but part of the things in Matthew 24 are figurative? Do you see where that leads to major problems? That's a big problem. I don't like that. I like, I like consistency in my hermeneutics. Is everybody else? Okay. okay. Everyone should say amen there. Okay. All right. So hermeneutical consistency, or you could call it hermeneutical inconsistency as being the problem. What would be a second weakness? What would be a second weakness? The second weakness would possibly be this, because look at how 29, most Bibles, I think it ends this way. Now remember, there was no punctuation in the original, but the translators don't end verse 29 with a period, I think, in most translations. Agreed? Okay, right? I will look in and see. Let me see. Well, I I understand that, but I'm just, I'm trying to make as many arguments as I can here. Um, Let's see, the next verse. Okay, well, this one does put a period there, but then they put then, so immediately following. I guess the, I'll just say, one of the weaknesses of 70 AD is, is this event seems to be immediately followed by what? In verse 30. Okay, well, now, there's a lots of argument in how to interpret this verse, but we'll say this. The, uh, the, what appears to be the return of Christ in verse 30 is immediately connected to verse 29. That's a problem. Unless we say that Christ did not come back in a literal way in 70 AD, which is how some interpret that. But that's, we'll read, we'll have to read some more here in a minute from the preterist, but I just want to get that. But you can see that's a possible problem, Right? Okay, some some translations have and some say then, but it's it's immediately connected to verse uh, twenty nine. All right, so what are the two weaknesses? Hermeneutical inconsistency or consistency. The return of Christ seems to be immediately connected to this event. Any other weakness? I think those are the two main weaknesses. Agreed. Now let's jump over to the future point of view. All right, what's the strengths to the future point of view? What's the strengths to the future point of view? Anybody? There's got to be at least one. 
All right, well, we'll I, let's, just, let's just bring this one over. One of the weaknesses for the, uh, the uh, 70 AD view is hermeneutical consistency. One of the strengths to the future view would be hermeneutical consistency. Agreed? Hey, everything else in Matthew 24 we're taking in a literal way. Why wouldn't we take that in a literal way? That would be a, a, that would be a strength of it, yes? Okay. And that doesn't answer the problems with Isaiah and all of that, but that's, we'll look at that from a weakness. But at least this gives an apparent, okay, that's, that's hermeneutically consistent. We just take it all literal, and we just say this is 70 AD, and now it jumps to the future, and it's all literal. Okay, that we, we see how we can make that work. Okay, that's a strength. Second is, I think, uh, I was going to say Emma, Lydia said, that immediately connects the sun, moon, and stars with Christ coming back. Okay, well, that at least makes sense in, uh, that, well, if Christ comes back literally, then those things have to take place literally, and they haven't taken place, so it has to be the future. So, all right, that works. That's two strengths. What's a third strength? What's a third strength? A third strength is, now this is not perfect, but it at least has the same language used in the book of Revelation. Right, same similar ideas with sun, moon, and stars. So at least, it, it, like the, the, the preterist wants to look to the language used in Isaiah and Ezekiel, the futurist wants to look at the language used in <laughs> Revelation. Okay. Isn't it amazing how we always go to the cross-references that do what? That agree with us. And, and how, does, that, does it always work that way? Okay, all right. So, but, but, but at least they have some things in Revelation to look to, all right? What would be another strength? What are the strengths so far for the uh, futurist point of view? Number one, kind of a hermeneutical consistency. Number two, it's the event in verse 29 seems to be immediately connected with the return of Christ. And number three, they've got language in Revelation that, that we think was, would be future, which would fit. Any other strength with the futuristic view that you see that just jumps off the page going, oh, don't forget this one, don't forget this one, because here's your chance. Okay, we'll, 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 we'll add that. Uh, it kind of goes with what she said, but we can add it. We don't believe Christ returned in a non-visible way in seven days, or... or uh, Christ hasn't returned. Let's just put that. Christ hasn't returned, and this connects the event with the return of Christ. I know it kind of goes with the, the one she's already said, but we'll separate it. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll put as many down as we can come up with. Okay. All right, now weaknesses to the futurist view. What's weakness number one? Okay. Well, weakness number one is the context. The context, the context, the context. Because Jesus is telling them the signs of the destruction of the temple. That, that's what they ask about. They don't ask about, I mean, you can try your best to try to imply that they're asking for something more, but you've got to understand they are confused by this. Wait, the temple's going to be destroyed? What is going on? So the context is Jesus telling them when the temple's, that's, when they, that's what they ask, right? So the, the, the context, what's... Uh, that's a weakness to the future view. What's another weakness to the future view? Verse 34. Verse 34 is constantly going to be a weakness. How's all this happen in, one gener- in, in that generation? What's another weakness to the future view? What's another weakness? 
I keep pointing to the wall like you can see the chart, but there's not, no actual chart. But this, it makes me feel... Do I? The chronology. We got a chronolo- chronological problem. Wait a minute. This is supposed to happen immediately after the tribulation. Well, which tribulation? Like, if it's... So some people try to say, well, it's, only, it's in the middle of the tribulation, but that's kind of odd. Like, it says after the tribulation. So the sun, moon, and stars drops after the tribulation, but it also drops during the tribulation. That's kind of confusing, right? And it also dropped in the past, but that's a different weakness, okay? So what's weakness number one? Verse 30, or context, number two. Verse 34, number three. The, the chronological order of events doesn't seem to, seems to have all kinds of problems. What's another weakness? The same language is used to describe the destruction of Babylon, Basra, and Egypt. Well, the sun, moon, and stars can't crash that many times, guys. Okay, does everybody understand that? It can only happen one time. It can only happen one time. Those are problems, agreed? Now, I know. What are we thinking? Well, what's the answer? I don't know, <laughs> okay? It's, it's almost a, a mystery that I, I don't think there's, it, there's any good way of, of trying to even come close to trying to, to figure this out, all right? Um, let's see here. Now, okay, well, they, they go over to Acts where we, where we, we, we could talk about. We're not going to go there, all right? Um, Yeah, they don't. They don't really do much with the next part. They immediately go to the. Uh, they immediately jump to verse. Uh, go figure. They immediately jump to verse thirty-two. <laughs> uh, no, not really. They 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 run over to Acts because everybody's like, well, Jesus has to return in the same way that he came back. So obviously that's somewhat of a reference to thirty, and then they try to get around the Acts language but they don't really deal with verse 30 in any specific way. All right? Um, so we could, go, we could go chase down what they do with the book of Acts when Jesus ascends, but it's not helpful. Then they immediately go to the parable of the fig tree. So okay. that's what all the books do. When, when you reach a problem that's problematic, you do what? Just eh, skip, skip. Let's move on. All right? So... What do we do here? So let's do this. Go back to Matthew 24, verse 29. Again, I want you to circle. You can put a question mark. Just make sure you separate 29 because 29 is where everything kind of has a problem, right? So I'm going to give you some possible options. Option one, and I'm not saying this works, is that everything from verse uh, 4... To 28 is everything pointing to 70 AD. And then, remember what they sometimes say about biblical prophecy? Is that it can jump. You can have one thing that deals with, say, the first coming, and then the second coming can be like literally in the same verse. So everything there goes to the first coming, and then all of a sudden, verse 29 jumps where? To the future. Now, the only problem, we still have all of the weaknesses I've already talked about, right? Still got the uh, context. You still got that same language being used in, uh, Israel, or in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. You still got problems. That's a possible idea. All right? That's a possible idea. 
right? I'm not saying it's great. It's a possible idea, all right? You can just throw that down as a possibility. It's not perfect, but you can do so. And then that would follow right into verse 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now you can see what would be the strength of making verse 29 jump to the future. It would be one thing if verse 30 just said the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. You could try to make it maybe something symbolic. What's the problem with verse 30? It goes beyond that, does it not? Coming in the clouds, and not only that, what does it say about the tribes? Does it say it's going to see it? Yeah. That's, that's a major problem for the preterist view. So verse 30 clearly seems to be second coming language, right? Seems to be. So making that jump. Then verse 31 he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They shall gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That definitely doesn't sound like 70 AD. So I think you can make an argument that 29, 30, and 31, if there's going to be a jump, that's where the jump has to occur. Now, that still, that still leaves you with a problem. What's the problem? Well, first, you've got the chronological problem. And secondly, 34. <laughs> You're still going to be right back. 34 is going to be a problem no matter what you do. As soon as you think, hey, look, I figured out Matthew 24. Verse 34 walks up and slaps you in the face and goes, no, you don't. No, you don't. What are you talking about? Isn't that crazy? But it is. All right. Now, here's what we're going to do. So, 29, 30, 31, possible jumps to the future possible. All right? Now, you could argue, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try this, that 34, because 34 is the problem. So what's a possible solution for 34? I'm not saying it works. Well, you could try to make, we well, could try to work that, but I'm going to try to find a solution for the futurist perspective. All right? Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. If we, if we take that generation being the generation who is present for verse 29, 30, and 31, that's, I don't even think that even works, but that's the only, it's like you have to change that meaning of that generation to whichever generation sees the sun, the moon, the stars, and all of that. Now the only problem is, He's, he, Jesus is literally saying this generation and we have to make this generation meaning that generation that's not even yet possibly born. That, that's, that's a problem. But I don't like it either. It's not, a good, it's not a good solution. But let's look at the parable. Let's look at the parable. Because right in the middle of this, he goes to a parable, yes? Which is kind of odd. What's the parable? Verse 32 and 33. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. 
So what's the main emphasis? Remember the parable, we don't want to, you can try to take a parable apart sometimes and it cause more problems than good. What's the simple message of the parable? Simple, just like dumb it down to like Levi Lincoln level. Just dumb it down. What's the basic message of this parable? Okay. All right. Great answers. Great answers, everyone. Okay. What do we have in the... (laughs) Look, no matter what we say in Matthew 24, we're all going to be wrong. Okay. All right. So what do we have in the first part of the parable? We have a fig tree. Okay. The fig tree, you can look at a fig tree and be able to determine what? According to the verse. What time of year it is? Right? Agree? It gives you the sign of the times or seasons, right? Are they agreed? Right? That sounds good. So look to the fig tree and you see the sign. Now, some people say, well, fig tree can represent Israel. You can, we don't need to break the parable. That's usually when parables go, people go crazy with parables. Remember, it's just to give you a basic illustration. Fig tree. You look to the fig tree. And so what do you see? And then how does he use the parable? What does he say in the next verse? He gives you the interpretation. All of these things, that's the fig tree. When you see all of these things, you know what? It's about to happen. All right? But he doesn't say some of these things when you see all these. That seems weird, isn't it? What's, what's, what's absolutely weird about this verse? Any good Bible student should pick it up. Something just seems completely broken. In this. this is where, this is like if I'm driving a, tr- a car, right? And I'm trying to figure out Matthew 24. There's been about six or seven times we've gone off the road, through a fence, over a cliff, and the car is blown up. We put it back together, and we got back on the road. This is where the car just, blo- just burst into flames, and it's over. Well, wait a minute. What, what, what just happened preceding the parable? Massive chronological issue here. Right, because, right, because he just said, if I see all of these things, if I see all of these things, it's over. Jesus has come back. You know what we just talked about in the previous verses? Hey, when you see all of these things, the end of, if I see all of these things, Jesus is already back. Agreed? Yes? Like, uh, I'm going to look at, I'm sorry, go ahead. All those things refer to, it could, but once again, it, we're, we're saying all these things doesn't mean all these things. It, that, that's always a problem, but. Right, but I'm saying, but. He doesn't, he doesn't say all of those things in the past. He just says all these things, seemingly everything he's just given in the discourse. Right? But I agree. If we can remove them, it works. But it's just not perfect for, with the language used. But I agree that, yeah, it, possibly that's the only way to make these things work. Um, my, this translation says it this way. Um, Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. And the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near at the door. How can he be near when you already have him coming back 
in the previous verses. So you almost have to say these things can't refer to those things because, well, those things would, he would already be near. Right? Truly I tell you, then he says, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until, again, once again, what do we have? All these things. Please note, how many times do all these things used in such a short period of time? The first time all these things are referred to is where? Verse 33. Everybody see that? Then verse 34. All these things. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That, man, I, all these things used two times in a row. That's, that's just trying to cause you to have a nervous breakdown. All right? That, that is, and, no, and no matter what you do, I mean, again, you can play all kinds of games saying, well, just like people do, after the tribulation means middle of the tribulation. All these things doesn't mean all these things. There's all these ways we can try to work around it, but no matter what we do, there is a problem. So here's what I want to do. And I'll just do this quickly because we don't have a lot of time. All right, here we go. Everybody ready? All right, that leads us at the end of verse 35, right? Okay, can everyone agree that leaves us with some major problems? We got two major views. We've got strengths and weaknesses. I've tried to offer some solutions. None of them are perfect. And, and anyone who will not, any preacher who will not admit that is just not being honest with the text. I know the way I'm supposed to preach this is just like, here's the way it is. And everybody's like, amen. And everybody just walks away. But that's not the way you study the text. You have to be honest with what's there. And what's there is massively difficult. That's why for 2,000 years of church history, nobody has any good answers. Now, I can go find a book that tells me it's easy. But that, what, what, I did a sermon review on, in our, you know, for the podcast. And, well... Yeah, but that sermon was a train wreck because, once again, it was, it was more worried about giving you an answer than being honest with the text. But here's what I want you to look at. Start in verse 36. All right? But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know only the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, the first, I love verse 36 for this because verse 36 introduces the lack of, of knowledge into the narrative, right? It says, no man knows. And I like that because there is some level of mystery and confusion in the preceding section. Now, obviously, he said that they they could have signs, right? Now, that would have fit perfectly. Most of those signs fit perfectly for 70 AD. So they would have had some signs. But the bottom line is, they didn't know exactly when it was going to come. Remember, that's 33 AD. Jesus is going to ascend, and they're going to be walking around going, okay, so what's going on? What's going on? And they've got to try to figure all of this out. If we jump to the future, we still don't know when he's going to come back. And we are walking around trying to figure it all out. Yes? So the Bible at least acknowledges There is a lack of not knowing connected to this section. I do love that. All right? Now, it connects this not knowing, right? But it says, but as the days of Noah, even so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, remember what everyone always wants to do with verse 37 drives me crazy. They want to connect the days of Noah with the wickedness of that time. This is not connecting it with the wickedness of the days of Noah. What is it connecting it with? Look at the the preceding verses. You tell me the answer. 
For as in the days they were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving into marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. What is not even mentioned in verse 38? No wickedness, no sin. They don't even mention it. What do they mention? Everyday life. In other words, here's what's going to characterize this time. People are just going to be like, you know what? I can't figure this out. I don't know when he's coming back. And they just, they just, go, on, they just go on with their life. Just the normal, normalcy of life, just the routine of life begins to become the dominant factor. In other words, what are you not worried of? You're not waking up every day going, okay, is Jesus about to be here? Is Jesus about to be here? No, you wake up every day doing what? I'm going to go on with my life. I'm going to find someone to marry, go to college, do, get, get a job, do, clean the house, wash the dishes, pay my bills, whatever. You're just going to go about, but almost forgetting like he's even coming. And then it seems to imply that when that becomes the dominant mindset, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, a lot of people like to use verse 40 and and following as a rapture passage. Some major problems with this, okay? So the flood came and did what? Take them all away. Now, the flood that take them all away is referring to who did it take away? Everyone not paying any attention, agreed? Well, then now you read the next section. The two shall be left in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Who's the one taken? Now, how it's preached in most evangelical churches, the one taken, all of a sudden now we jump to the rapture here, okay? And the, the, the one taken, that's the rapture. The context is the one taken is the one what? The one who's taken away in the flood, the one who's judged. Isn't that what seems to be the language here? Now, if it's 70 AD, it makes perfect sense, right? Because what did he tell you about these signs? When you see the signs, get out of where? Out of Judea. Run for your lives. Dodge, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe this all took place in Kansas. Okay, okay. Maybe. Okay, but no, get out. Go, get. So if they followed the signs, guess what? They would have been gone, but they didn't. But in many cases, they didn't follow the signs because some of the false pre- prophets told them to go where? To go to the temple, and then Josephus records them being absolutely slaughtered. So who's the ones taken away? The ones not paying attention. I don't know how we jump to the rapture here. It's just amazing that these verses, you know, you know, wish we, you know, wish we would have all been ready. You know, left behind books, left behind movies. Everybody jumps. And everybody loves this passage, but you always want to. Could you read it in its context? The flood is the one who takes them away, right? Yes, and then, then what happens? The two will be in the field. One shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be in the grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. So, here's some basic concepts. Everybody ready? I'm going I'm to give you three, at least to end with. Because we're going to end Matthew 24, and we're not going to have a lot of good answers. Right? So here's what we do. Are you ready? Number one... We have to embrace that there's things we do not understand about Matthew 24, about how it all fits to 70 AD, and we clearly don't know how it all fits pointing to the future. We have to just to embrace the fact that we don't know everything. 
Okay? I mean, he, he, Jesus could have given them far better information about 70 AD, right? He could have said, hey, guys, 70 AD, right? He could have said 70 AD. He doesn't tell them that, right? So clearly, he doesn't give them the information. He doesn't give us the information. No man knows. We have to embrace the mystery. I don't like mystery. I want answers, right? But we don't get the answers. What's the second thing we have to uh, take from this? Be ready, because as in the days of Noah, they stopped being ready, and they got washed away by a flood. So we have to be ready. Now, we don't have to worry about 70 AD. We just have to know that be ready for whatever Jesus will bring in the future. That's what we have to be ready for. Yes? A third thing, which goes right along with this, look at verse 42. Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. We need to be watching. We need to be watching. We need to embrace the mystery. We need to be alert, I guess. We need to be ready. I will say we'll be ready, and we need to watch. Because I think the word alert is going to show up in just the next couple of verses, is it not? Or be ready. He says be ready in verse 44. All right, but that's okay. We'll stop right there. Right, there's, more, there's more we could take apart, but that's okay. We have to embrace the mystery. We have to be ready. And we have to watch. We have to watch. Watch. I don't know how many... I don't think much of Matthew 24 is for us to watch because most of that already occurred. But... We just got to be watching and paying attention to what's happening in our world and what's going on and to the rest of Scripture because heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not, as he says in Matthew 24. All right? Is that, that's not perfect. After 26 hours of working through this chapter, 20, whatever, seven hours now, whatever, how many hours we've worked on it now, um, we have spent a lot of hours working on it. Okay, lots of people have sent their homework in and they've worked on it. And I think everyone realizes there's a lot of answers here. And I could have made it very simple and said, hey, here's Matthew 24. Here's three points and be done and do it in one sermon. I mean, I've heard I've heard Matthew 24 preached in one sermon. I've heard it broken down in two or three sermons. I don't know how that's even humanly possible because there's so many issues. All right. So let's just summarize here. We, we have looked over and over and over at the strengths of looking at Matthew 24 from the perspective of 70 AD. Have we not? Yes. We do know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That's a historical fact. Go to Jerusalem today. There's no temple there, okay? There's a mosque, okay? There's no temple, okay? And Jews can't even get there, okay? There's, a constant, there's still battles going on about it right now. We know that much, agreed? Okay, that's a fact. We do know that there's some things here in Matthew 24 that makes us want to look to the future. But just remember, it's still problematic because chronology, everything about it is is problematic. There's also difficulties with some of the language being used in the Old Testament that's not describing the same future event. There's no way to make it describe the same future event. It would be hard. Like, wait, so Babylon, Egypt, and Basra are all going to be destroyed on the same day? Jerusalem is, or, you know, like 
how does it all work, right? So how to fit it all together becomes majorly problematic. But what we can, we have to just take all of what we don't know. The one good thing we can take from it is Jesus said these things were going to happen, and we know most of that happened before 70 AD, and we know that when he said the temple was going to be destroyed, it was destroyed. So Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. That temple was destroyed. The rest of those signs, we can argue all day where to fit them, but we know the temple was destroyed. That's a historical fact. You don't even need to read a Bible for that. You can just read Josephus, or you you can just go to Jerusalem, and you'll see. What happened to the temple? It was destroyed, okay? Why? Okay, well, Jesus said in 33 AD it was going to occur, right? Everybody got that? So that's great. So what are three things we need to take with us? Embrace the mystery. I don't like it. But here's what's most important. It's better to embrace uncertainty than to grab onto certainty at the expense of truth. Embrace uncertainty because it's better to have uncertainty than to grab certainty at the expense of truth. Never embrace certainty for the expense of truth. Truth is what matters, and guess what sometimes truth leads you with? Uncertainty. You're just like, I don't, I don't, have, I don't have a good answer. I, don't, I, don't, I wish I always had all the answers, but if, you've ever, if you study the Bible, you'll realize you don't have all the answers. Right? You don't. It's just there's a lot of uncertainty. We wish there was, but some people want certainty. Once you want certainty over truth, you need to really stop studying the Bible because uh, you're in trouble, all right? What's the second thing? We got to be ready because I don't want to be the people swept away. Correct? We got to be ready and we got to watch. We got to have our eyes open and pay attention. Most importantly, watching and paying attention to what God's word has to say. There you go. Now, there'll probably be a little bit more work on Matthew 24 for the podcast, but um, I think we'll stop there. So we'll, we'll get ready to transition to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, um, for the Bible study exercise. Remember, curriculum is available online, and then we do all the Bible study exercise podcasts all the time, all, every week. So, all right, everybody good to go? If you have any questions, you can ask me afterwards. Don't make them good questions afterwards because I like to have that recorded. Okay, all right, here we go. For those listening online, oh, hang on. Let me check, make sure no one left messages while we were talking. It'll probably be some difficult question here. Let me look one second. Let me look, let me look. Nope, all right, good. Because I explained everything so good that it has to go. No, wait till I get home. Then that's when the questions will start. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, a very difficult passage. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to struggle through it here. Not a lot of places would give me that opportunity. We thank you for all the people online who've worked in this study and have turned in homework and have struggled uh, with it as well. I pray that somehow, even though we didn't have all the answers, we now are prepared to hear any perspective on it without being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, and that's actually the purpose of the church. So even, we, even though we don't have certainty, I hope that we now have at least a firm foundation to stand on. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...